Would you join me in praying um, as we come to the word this morning? Lord Jesus, all joking aside, we need for you to come and meet with us this morning. First of all, God, I love that sound. I really do. Uh, We have prayed for many years uh, that you would bring young families, that we would hear children Uh, in our midst, that we would be able to teach and raise up the next generation. And you have always, as we just sang, you've always been faithful uh, with that. And uh, that little chorus we just heard there, God, again, just gives testimony to how faithful you are. So thank you. Uh, But God, as we come to your word this morning, um, some now with the kids gone with maybe a renewed focus in being able to, uh, to hear from you during this time, we pray that you would move and have your way that you would come, God, show up and show off. Do what only you can this morning, I pray. So speak to your people. Change hearts and lives, I pray. Bring your word to life in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So we spent the last year plus working through the book of Mark, and we're done now with the book of Mark, amen? Okay, but not quite. Um, what I want to do is spend the next couple of weeks not just, like we're going to do kind of a recap, but not just of the book of Mark, kind of looking at all of the gospels. But I realized going for, I think it was like a year and like four months that it took us to make it through the book of Mark. How many of you remember what we talked about a year ago? Me neither. Okay. It's easy in this kind of situation to, as the saying goes, lose the forest for the trees. Taking this long, slow, deep walk through the book of Mark has so many benefits. And being able to look at this specific teaching of Jesus or this specific miracle uh, that Jesus did, and there's, there's deep richness to that. But sometimes going that slow and that deep through the book, you can kind of forget that there's an overarching narrative. Uh, that there is a greater purpose to all of this, tying it all together. Uh, and so what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is just revisit this kind of overarching narrative that ties all the gospel events together. So I'm not going to re-preach uh, the book of Mark. We're going to touch on some of the same stuff. We're going to bring in some of the other gospels. But I want to make sure that we see the forest, that we see the overarching plan for all of it, and not get lost in the beauty of each one of those interactions. Does that make sense? So that's where we're going to be for the next uh, couple weeks. So we've been looking at the life of Jesus and, and not just rushing to the cross. Oftentimes, that's, that's what we do when we come to the Gospels, when we come to the life of Jesus, we just kind of go, yeah, 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 get to the cross. Wow, Jesus did this, Jesus did that, cool, but the cross is kind of like the main point, the main takeaway. And I don't want to minimize the cross, But I also think that's why Mark, the shortest gospel, is 16 chapters long, and the cross only took up two of them, is because there's more that we're to get from it. The cross is pivotal, and we're going to come back and we're going to touch on that here in a minute. But the reason that we've been walking through the gospels in this slow, methodical manner is to look at the life of Jesus, how he lived, what he taught, how he loved, how he interacted with people. All of this can't be missed because of the beauty of the cross. We we kind of cheapen what Jesus came to do if we go, the cross is the only thing that matters. We, We miss a lot of what he came to teach us, to show us. So again, the cross is pivotal. We're going to come back and we're going to touch on that here in a minute. This is not at all to diminish that. But I don't want to, because of its beauty, lose the focus of everything else that Jesus came to do. Does that make sense? Okay, 
So we've been looking at how he lived and what he taught and all of this for a very specific reason. The last command that Jesus gave to us after the cross, before he ascends into heaven, we often call it the Great Commission. And let me read it for you. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That is massive, and we'll touch on it later. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is Jesus really commanding them, commissioning them to do? Go be like me. Everything you saw me do, now you go do it. Everything you heard me teach, implement it into your own life and go teach others to do the same. Again, it wasn't just go tell people about the cross, the end. There is this, this incredible piece of, man, the cross opened the door and that people can come into relationship baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, helping them come into relationship with me. Why? So that they can become like me. So that they can live and love like I do. And when we think about how Jesus lived, how Jesus loved, what he taught, all the things that he commanded, and that they were to then go teach other people to obey all of this, it can all be summed up in four, maybe five words. The kingdom of God. The fifth one is sometimes God is replaced with heaven. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, some people get kind of confused by this, going, wait, is he talking about two different things? And They're synonyms. It's the same thing. It's interchangeable. But Jesus' entire life, entire message can be summed up by the kingdom of God. Let's look at some of the things that Jesus came and taught. Remember, he just told his disciples, go out and teach them to obey everything I have commanded. So let's see what kind of stuff he was teaching. In Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled. This is Jesus speaking to the crowds. And the kingdom of God has come near Repent and believe in the good news. Over in Matthew chapter 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. All these things, he had just gone through this long list of don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. God knows what you need. He's going to take care of you, but seek first the kingdom of God. Luke, telling this same story, adds a piece at the end. He says, but seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you what? The kingdom. Matthew chapter 4, from that time on. This is at the beginning of Jesus' message. He's just come out of the wilderness. He was baptized. Really the beginning of his formal ministry. From that time on, Jesus began to preach what? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus sends out the 72 to go and minister just like he was doing. He says, go do miracles like me. Go teach like me. And here's what he tells them. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them what? The kingdom of God has come near. Everything Jesus did was, was an illustration of the kingdom of God. Everything he taught was how to live in the kingdom of God. It encapsulates everything that Jesus came to do and everything he sent us to do. The primary thing in our lives is to be the kingdom of God, but seek first what? The kingdom of God. 
and everything else will be provided for you. Jesus, as he was teaching, what was the most famous way that Jesus would teach? Parables. What did almost every single parable start with? The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. We're going to look at some, we're just going to touch on them real quick and move through. In one teaching time, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus has this crowd and, and he's teaching for this single day. And we're just going to walk through. Let me see. There's one, two, three, four, five, six of them in a row, back to back to back. I'm just going to read the first line of each of the parables. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Six verses later, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Two verses later, he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Eleven verses later, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought the field. Next verse, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Two verses later, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. What do you think Jesus was trying to communicate to the people? What the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus has this large crowd at this time, and what is he spending literally all of his time telling them? He's been saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, and people were probably going, cool, what is that? And so he spends the rest of his time, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of, it's, it's like a man who finds a pearl. It's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. That's an interesting one we're going to talk about next week. It's like a merchant selling these, these fine pearls. And he goes into all of these things because he goes, you have to be able to grasp this kingdom of heaven thing. This, this is the whole kit and caboodle. You can look at the way Jesus went about life and go, man, if you miss this, you miss the whole thing. And so now here we are, 2,000 years later. Raise your hand if you were a follower of Jesus. It's bright. I can't even see. Some of you may not have. No judgment. So we should understand what the kingdom of God is, right? I mean, we're, we're followers of Jesus. We've had 2,000 years to get it all correct, right? So let me ask this question. And this is where, let's have some feedback. What is the kingdom of God? <laughs> worth it. From what Jesus said, I mean, some of this stuff, again, we're not going to get into all the parables, but it's worth selling everything for. He, he's talking about the, the exquisite value of the kingdom. It's worth prioritizing. It's worth placing first. But what is it? All believers? Okay. So is this, it's simply just to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Okay. So is it then following his commands? Both? I mean, yeah, the belief leads to something, sure. What is the kingdom of God? This should be an easy one for us. We've had 2,000 years, right? He, he makes it very clear, you're in the kingdom or you're not. There, there is this, this definite dividing line. There are those that are in the kingdom and those that are not. It's like anything else. There are those that are U.S. citizens and there are those that are not. You can't kind of be, maybe, kind of, like you are or you're not. 
That, so there's a very clear a dividing line between the two. You're lost or you're found. You're in the kingdom or you're not. But what is the kingdom? Joe? Okay. It's ultimate freedom. And, and there's an interesting twist you put on there. In bondage to him. In, in attaching ourselves to Jesus and going, I serve you, we actually find ultimate freedom. What else? What is the kingdom of God? It's kind of a confusing thing, right? Okay, so there can be no kingdom if there's not a king. And so to be part of the kingdom is to recognize the king's authority. It's about his kingdom, not mine. It's about what he wants, not what I want. Other thoughts? What is the kingdom? Okay, so go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, please. Okay, so a couple things he said there. It's a community of people. A, a, a kingdom doesn't exist. If I have one follower, I don't have a kingdom. Okay, so there, there's this community aspect of it where there's submission to the king and there's some, some fruit that's attached to it. You know, we kind of said, hey, you're either in or you're out. If you're in the kingdom, there's natural fruit that comes. Righteousness, peace, justice, power, some of these different things that, that come naturally from being a part of the kingdom. But this, this whole kingdom thing, there's, you don't actually hear a ton of teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about it a lot, and we kind of move through it to go, yeah, 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 it's like pearls. We all want pearls, right? But we don't spend a whole lot of time going, like, let's define it. What is the kingdom of God? Jesus was really big on it. He talked about it all the time. And most of us were happy to be in it, but we don't even know what it is. Here, here is a, a simple working definition that I've created. There are probably some other people that have put it uh, in, in better ways. But for me, this makes it very simple. The kingdom of God is everywhere the king's will is done. We, we mentioned some words earlier, authority, submission, those kind of things. It's everywhere where someone recognizes you're the king and I'm not. Jesus, teaching his disciples to pray over in Matthew chapter six, this then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come. Right now, your kingdom is perfect in heaven because your will done all the time, every time. May that happen here on earth. And Jesus isn't telling his disciples, pray that that happens in other people's lives. He's saying for themselves, that's their prayer. Lord, may your kingdom come in me like it is in heaven. May your will be done by me like your will is done perfectly in heaven. May I submit to you. May I choose your will over my will in every area of my life. Is this making sense? Simply put, the kingdom of God is everywhere the king's will is done. Where someone bends a knee to the king and says, your king, I'm not. Your will be done, not mine. That's the basis of the kingdom of God. I sent out a video uh, this morning. I texted it um, from the church phone number, so hopefully most of you got it. Uh, the Bible Project, which we've looked at a couple of their videos. Um, they've got, it's like a four-some-minute video just about the kingdom of God and about this kind of idea, what it meant all the way through history 
when a new king was proclaimed, kind of what that meant, it's a weird thing for us. Because, uh, man, we, we pray for our veterans and we're so thankful for them because they've given us a democracy where we have a say. And that kind of screws us up in our Christian faith. Because we come to God and we go, hey, 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 I didn't vote on that. That's not how kingdoms work. In a kingdom, there is one will that trumps all, and that's the king's. You don't get to come to the king and go, I don't think that's a good idea, and I don't want to do it. You're not the king. He doesn't care. And so I sent this video out. It kind of helps give some background to it. But essentially, the kingdom of God is everywhere the will of the king is done. So let me ask this question. What is God's will? What is the king's will? And I'm not talking about in a super specific to you manner because there's times when we need to know God's will. Should I take this job? Should I not? Should I marry this person? Should I not? Should I date this person? I probably shouldn't. Just throwing that out there to all of the single folks there. there there's some of those very specific things for each of us, but there's kind of some bigger principle always apply types of things to the will of God. There's kind of some things that in any situation, God's going to go, whichever one leads here, that's the one you should pick. Kind of idea. Some big umbrella pieces. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul teaching, and he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We talked about this a, a couple months ago. It's possible to know the will of God. He, he, he has given us, the, the scriptures would say, the mind of Christ to be able to understand what God's desire is for us. So what is God's will for us? Again, talking in very broad terms, what is the will of God? If we're going to do the king's will, we better know what it is. Okay. Yeah, to expand the kingdom. One of the things that we pray for a lot in this church, again, in a, in a very general term, is kingdom advancement. That, that the king's kingdom would advance, would go to new places, that new people would be brought into the kingdom and the kingdom would grow. Absolutely. What else? What is God's will? As simply as you can put it. Okay. Love him, love people. Uh, we come from this in the book of Mark. We looked at it in Mark chapter 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which one is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So Jesus said, look, like the first rule in the kingdom, love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Is there ever a time when that's not God's will? Never. So the first rule in the kingdom is love God with everything and love my neighbor these are helpful things because you get into a situation where you're going, oh boy, what's the right, uh, I don't know, what's the right choice to make? I think kingdom question number one, when you get in those places where you're like, do I go right, do I go left? We talked about this a few weeks ago. What does love require? Which one puts me in the best position to love God with everything I have 
and to best love my neighbor. To best see that my neighbor gets everything in life that I would desire for myself. God's will is always for me to love him with everything and to love my neighbor well. So that's kind of that that overarching thing. What does it look like to live out the kingdom? Love God with everything and love my neighbor well. What else? What else is God's will? Is is there anything else that kind of points us towards the will of God, kind of in every situation? Miss Kitty. Submission. Okay. So there's part of it is seeking God's will. We don't get to come in and co-sign and go, hey, God, here's what I'm doing. Why don't you bless it? But coming in and going, Lord, you're king. I'm not. What is your will? To even seek it. But the, to seek it with a heart that says, before you even tell me what it is, I'm already saying yes to it. I, I, I don't even know what it is that you're going to call me to, but God, I'll do it because you're the king and I'm not. You give me the direction and I will follow it. That's hard. That's very hard. There's a reason why Jesus had to keep pounding this kingdom thing is because we keep going, my kingdom come, my will be done. And he said, no, 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 no. Every day, this is how you need to be praying. God, it's about your kingdom and your will. Jesus in the garden, I think, prayed the most beautiful kingdom prayer when he said, God, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But then what did he pray? Not my will but yours be done. That's a kingdom prayer. God, I see what it is you're calling me to do, and I'm telling you, I don't want to do it. But I also recognize I'm not in charge. You are. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. In Matthew 28, we already looked at this. In the great commission, the sending out Jesus told us his will. Again, kind of big, overarching. Then Jesus said to them, and I want to key in on this. Most times when you read the Great Commission, they start with verse 19, and I think you miss it all. Verse 19 starts with a word that should always stop us in our tracks. It starts with therefore. What do we do when we read the word therefore, church? We ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Any verse that starts with therefore is the wrong starting place. Go back. There, it's, it's saying, because of that, do this. And if you don't have the because of that, you're not going to do this. So let's go back a verse. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm the king now, baby. You are in the presence of the king. I have been given from the father all authority. Heaven, earth, you name it. I've been given authority over it. Therefore, because I'm the king and I'm in charge, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But don't worry, the king's with you every step of the way. But remember, I've been given authority, not you. Now go and do what I've commanded you to do. I'll be with you. I will work through this, walk through every step with you, but I am the king. Now go and do the king's work. And the king's work from here is exactly what Colin was saying earlier. Go expand the kingdom. Go do the things you saw me doing. Go love people well. Make disciples. They would have heard disciples and they would have gone, hey, wait, that's what he did. He made disciples. We were his disciples. And now he's saying, just like I discipled you, 
go disciple others. Just like I loved and taught and cared for you, go love and teach and care for others. That they would be baptized, that they would be brought into the kingdom, and that they would begin to obey everything. And then they would go and make disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples, and the kingdom is expanded. In short, Jesus was saying, go be like the king. I'm the king, and my will is that you go be like me. That you go do the things you saw me doing. That you love God with everything you have and love your neighbor well, just like you saw me doing. One of the things that we, we talk about here in the church, we say that the Alliance Church exists to see every person involved in what? Kingdom life. If the kingdom is to see the will of the king done everywhere, what does it look like to be involved in kingdom life? Again, my own working definition here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it afterwards, truly, as I'm trying to kind of craft this. But kingdom life is citizens of the kingdom in love with the king, living and loving like the king. I'm a citizen. I, I, I have allegiance to the kingdom. His kingdom come first. Seek first my kingdom, and all these other things will be given to you. Citizens of the king, in love with the king, living and loving just like the king. And I want to stop and, and talk to the men in the room real quick. We can hear love the king. We can hear love Jesus. And oftentimes we go, oof, that's a weird one. Like, guys don't really love other guys well. Uh, it, it's, we don't write books about it. We don't, it's a tough one for us at times. And, and I want to stop and say, every time when the scriptures are talking about this word love, whether it's loving God, loving your neighbor, loving Jesus, it is not talking about some weak romance novel love. This is not a rom-com. This is talking about laying down your life for the king kind of love. When I think about what it looks like to love Jesus, I'm reminded of a story, one of my favorite stories um, in the life of David. It comes in 2 Samuel. David is, is older, getting along in years. He's not able to do some of the things that he used to do. And he's got a bunch of guys that surround him. He's got 30 men that are called his mighty men who are known for doing all these crazy things. And there's this one scene where the Philistines, David's mortal enemies, have taken over his hometown of Bethlehem. And so David goes out there, not really to fight anymore. Now he's just kind of the old king that sits and kind of gives some orders. And they go and they surround his hometown of Bethlehem. And it's kind of this long siege. And, and it says in 2 Samuel that David is sitting there and it says he's just parched for thirst. And just kind of on a whim, he goes, oh, that I could have a drink from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. That I could have a drink from the well that I used to drink from as a kid. Oh, that would be great. And it's just kind of this like wistful, man, I'm thirsty. I, like the water from that well just reminds me of home. And three of his mighty men hear the king simply just longing on a whim. Oh, wouldn't it be great? And so these three men, they suit up for battle and they go, king wants water, king gets water. And these three men break through the Philistine lines. They go to the well. They draw well with, uh, water from the well with a ladle. And so now on their way back, there's probably two men fighting and one man trying not to spill the king's water as they go. And they bust back out and they bring the water to their king and they go, hey, you didn't even ask for it, but we heard that you wanted it. Here you go. Literally your whim, my king, is my life's desire. I will lay down my life for the things that you think, man, it would just be nice. 
That is what love for the king looks like. I want your will to be done. The things that you even just kind of would like to see happen, I will give my life to. That is what we mean when we say living in love with the king. Not some, oh Jesus, I want to sing romance songs to you. But my king, I am devoted to you and I will give my life for the things that you desire. Citizens of the kingdom in love with the king, living and loving like the king. This was Jesus' message everywhere he went. There's a new kingdom in town and there's about to be a new king in town. Everything he taught was a version of this or an illustration of this. You ever thought why people were so amazed by Jesus when he would go and teach? He would always say they were amazed and they were astonished because of the authority that he taught with. Not authority like we tend to think of where he came in and slammed his fist and said, I'm in charge, do what I say. But the kind of authority where Jesus would come and he would teach crazy, impossible things, but he would teach it in such a way where it's, it's almost like this guy thinks that's actually possible. Like, and people were astonished. And they're going like, what? It, did he really just say that? Yeah, right, that would take a miracle. They were closer than they knew. Jesus would come and he would say, look, to hate in your heart is the same as to commit murder. In the kingdom that's coming, to even hate in your heart is the same as taking that person's life. So therefore, forgive your enemies. Bless your enemies. Even attempt to be reconciled to your enemies. And they would have gone, that's impossible. No one can do that. That would take a miracle. Who does this guy think he is? But he actually believes it. He's not like the teachers that we're used to who, who tell us things that they never intend on living through themselves. This guy actually, he's drank the Kool-Aid and they're astonished by it. He says, look, to lust is the same as committing heinous acts of adultery with that person. It's the same thing. And they would have gone, we've all done that. Some of them are going, I'm doing it right now. Like, what are you talking about? This is impossible. Here's the thing that they didn't yet understand. The kingdom of God is a kingdom based on resurrection. It's a kingdom based on the impossible happening. It's a kingdom based on those that are dead doing things that only alive people can do. And so before Jesus went to the cross, before that gateway was opened, they were going, this is impossible and they were right. But Jesus went, pay attention. The kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. There was always this, you're almost there kind of thing. But then after the cross, we have like the Apostle Paul going and preaching the good news of the kingdom. It's here. You can actually take part in it. The things that seemed impossible before are now possible for those who believe. You can do the things like the, uh, the things that Jesus would talk about, like the sins of your heart that no one else even knew about. He goes, we can be free of those. We can be forgiven. We can bless those who curse and persecute us. These would have been impossible to them. The kingdom of God is a kingdom based on resurrection. The kingdom of God begins and ends with resurrection, literally. The kingdom of God became available at Jesus' resurrection, which we looked at last week. It truly was an impossibility to be a part of the kingdom before then, 
because we were dirty, filthy. We had divided allegiance and we could not survive in the kingdom of God. But because of Jesus' death on our behalf and his resurrection that we've been invited into, it's now possible for us. We can live a life of allegiance to the king because Jesus rose from the dead, because the king's alive, not dead in a tomb somewhere. And so the kingdom has been made available to us. And we know for those of us who believe, one day there will be another resurrection where we will be raised to life to live with the king for all of eternity. Here's the problem. Most of us leave resurrection as the book ends. Hey, Jesus, thanks for that resurrection that you did. And man, one day I'm going to get to take part in one. And we miss out on the power of resurrection in the kingdom today, every single day. God's kingdom is fueled by and is always moving toward resurrection. We looked at this passage last week, Paul teaching in Ephesians He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul's going, look, I wish you could see what you have been given incomparably great riches. The power that is at work in you, he doesn't say will be at work in you one day, that power that is at work in you right now. I'm praying that God opens your eyes so that you can see that power alive and well, moving in you right now. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That same resurrection power is alive and well in the kingdom now. And Paul's going, I pray that your eyes are open to see it. He's not even praying like, man, God, maybe you could pour out a little more. He's going, it's right there. I just pray you'd be made aware of it. The kingdom power that is at work in those who believe right now today, it's a resurrection power. Paul would say in Philippians chapter three, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. To know today, not one day in the future, hey, won't eternity be great. Right now, Paul is living to know the power of the resurrection and participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. One day that's going to happen. I don't even understand it. It's this crazy mystery. We're going to be resurrected, eternal life with Jesus. It's going to be incredible, but I don't want to wait for that. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection right now, today. And here's a sticking point for some of us. And participating in his sufferings. There is no resurrection where there's no death. We live such death and pain avoidant lives, no wonder we never see resurrection. We refuse to go to the places that need resurrection because they remind us of death. So we don't talk about that relationship. We don't talk about that thing that happened in our lives. We don't talk about that weakness or that struggle because that feels like death. But then sometimes we go, well, where's the resurrection? Where's the power? Paul understood these things have to go together. I want to know the power of his resurrection, so I have to participate in his death. I have to go to the places where I don't want to go, where the king is leading me for my own good, so that I can experience resurrection in those things. So let me add on a little bit to my working definition of kingdom life. Citizens of the kingdom, in love with the king, living and loving like the king, through the power of the king. 
We have to fight the tendency to leave the resurrection at the bookends of our faith. We have a tendency to try to do the Christian life apart from resurrection. Sometimes, honestly, here's what this looks like. Some people, I won't even say in this room, though I don't know everyone's story in this room well enough. Some people think they're Christians. They think they're a part of the kingdom, but they're not. They're just simply trying to do the kingdom things. So I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. I'll go to church. I'll try to be nice in a way of earning. I'm going to try to do the kingdom, but they've never actually been resurrected. Some of us have experienced, we put our faith in Jesus, we've experienced spiritual life and relationship with the king, and then we said, cool, thanks, I'll see you in heaven one day, and we try to do it now in our own power, and it's a fool's errand. What this leads to is frustration and, at best, nominal Christianity. The kind of, yeah, I'm in, but I don't really know kind of Christianity a faith devoid of power and of transformation. It leads to people who believe in Jesus, but their lives look exactly the same as they did before. And that is not kingdom life. That is not what has been offered to us. That is not what is expected from us. But it's to live a life in love with the king, doing the things the king did, living and loving like him through his power at work in us. His desire is to work his power in and through our lives so that when the world looks at our lives, they see resurrection miracle after resurrection miracle after resurrection miracle. She's back. Truly, this kind of prayer, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in me today. God, what are you trying to resurrect in my life today? What situation? What relationship? What sin pattern do I have? That you're, Every day, God is trying to work resurrection in us. He's calling us toward resurrection. Kind of like Paul said, I pray that your eyes would be open to it. That we could start to partner with him and go, God, what are you trying to bring to life today that's dead? Because that's what he does. That's what the kingdom is about. Bringing life where there's death. That is the kingdom in action. Paul understood this. Again, he, he teaches on it so much. In Colossians, he says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. What is this mystery, Paul? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God wanted to make known to the world around you what the kingdom is like. And so he puts it on display in you, Christ, the hope of glory. We all proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And this last line captures it. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works so powerfully in me. That Paul understood, I don't have what it takes. This whole kingdom thing, your will be done, not my will. God, I don't have what it takes. May you work that same resurrection power in me. May you, like... What is Paul laboring for? Striving with Christ's energy. I'm trying to get to the king, to get resurrection power from the king so that the king can put on display life through me. If we're truly going to engage in kingdom life, again, I'm just going to keep saying the citizens of the kingdom in love with the king, living and loving like the king through the power of the king. 
We're going to need to learn to rely on resurrection power every day in every arena of our lives. But that's what we're going to talk about next week. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I don't know why, but we have had a tendency to kind of minimize the kingdom thing and say, just believe in what Jesus did on the cross and you're fine. But that's not what you taught. You were always inviting us in to kingdom life, to participation with the king, to sonship with the king, to the power of the kingdom, to advance the kingdom. And for some reason, God, we, we've turned a blind eye too often. I pray exactly as the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians, God. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. God, may your power be put on display through us. May we seek your will. May we submit to your will. And Lord, may we strive with all of your energy that so powerfully works within us to see your kingdom come, I pray. Give us this kingdom lens, God. Can continue to bring this home to us, I pray. You are the king, not us. Your will be done, not ours. We need your kingdom power. We don't have enough. Move in us, we pray, God. May we know Christ and the power of his resurrection, participating in the sufferings that the world would know that you are the king. In Jesus' name, amen.